Hello, and welcome to AJC Passport, brought to you by AJC, the diplomatic arm of the Jewish community. Each week, we'll chat with experts from around the world to help you better understand the week's headlines and what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. Hi, AJC Passport fans. I'm in Europe this week, far away from the AJC Learner Studio in New York City. But don't worry, we've made sure that you'll still get your weekly dose of the show while I'm traveling. Both of these conversations were recorded during the historic AJC Global Forum in Jerusalem last month. For the first, I sat down with Emily Landau, a senior research fellow at Israel's prestigious Institute for National Security Studies. Emily is the head of the Institute's Arms Control and Regional Security Program, and she joined us to discuss the future of Iran's nuclear program. Next, we spoke with Sergio Della Pergola, a renowned expert on Israeli and Jewish demography. We chatted about why the topic of demographics comes up so frequently in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and I asked him about the trends he sees in Israel's population growth. Enjoy the show! Emily, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. So let, let's get right down to it. Is the Iran deal dead? Not for sure. Not for sure. What happens with the Iran deal will be a function of the decisions of the parties to the deal. Not the signatories, by the way. Nobody signed this deal, <laughs> even though that's the way you know it's written in almost every media article. Right, right. But there was never a signing ceremony. It was not signed. And that actually matters because it was at Iran's insistence that everything be voluntary in this deal. And the reason is that according to Iran's narrative, they've done nothing wrong in the nuclear realm. So everything they agree to is so-called out of the goodness of their heart, not because they have to, because they never did anything wrong. So the parties that agreed to the JCPOA are the parties that will determine what happens with the JCPOA. And one scenario that's conceivable is that productive conversations do proceed between the Europeans and the Americans. And maybe the Europeans will be willing to move forward on the issues that the Trump administration wanted in order to strengthen the deal without having to leave the deal. And the Americans might come back into the deal. In other words, there's nothing that says that the Trump administration that is withdrawn from this deal, that that's a one-way ticket, okay? They, the Europeans, again, if there's enough progress made, if they do have these conversations, I hope they do have them, uh, after the initial period of being very upset with the Americans, uh, they're now upset with the Americans for a lot of reasons, but certainly over the JCPOA, they could convince the Americans to come back into the deal. So that's one scenario. And, and it would be as simple as that. We could just... It could be because it's up to them to decide. Just like he made the decision to leave, of course it would mean something with regard to sanctions. He couldn't place sanctions that have to do with anything that touches upon the, the deal anymore. Um, but that's one scenario. Another scenario is that the deal somehow continues without the United States. This might be, you know, considered to be low probability right now um, because, I mean, a lot is up to the Europeans right now. On the first scenario I said of convincing maybe the Americans to come back, but also whether they continue without the Americans. In other words, 
The Europeans need to decide whether they're firmly in Iran's camp or the JCPOA camp because we know the Iranians are desperate for this deal to remain. It's now been revealed that they actually benefit from this deal. They want it to remain. So if the Europeans stay on you know, that side of the equation against the United States with all the sanctions in the background, that could happen. But what most people expect to happen is that the Europeans will understand that once there are U.S. sanctions that basically say to the companies, major companies, and they're already pulling out of Iran, either you deal with us or you deal with the Iranians, they're going to choose America. Right. And, and of course, we've seen American companies by law pulling out of, of right. Iran. The big Boeing deal right. was canceled. Right. Right. Um, one of the things you said a moment ago was that from Iran's perspective, they haven't done anything wrong in the nuclear realm. What about the non-proliferation treaty? They're a signatory to that, right? Yes, they are a party to it. They not only signed, they ratified. So they're a party to the and treaty. And so were they, were they violating the NPT? Of course, obviously. But the Iranians have the ability to deny everything. Um, up until the latest uh, revelations uh, that uh, Netanyahu presented to the world um, on the basis of the Mossad operation in Tehran, they were in that warehouse, they brought out the, uh, all the material that um, gives us so many details with regard to Iran's nuclear plans, uh, military plans. All we had was this uh, special annex of uh, the IAEA report on Iran, which contained all the material, the intelligence material that indicated that Iran had worked on a military nuclear program. For a long time, the Iranians resisted even getting into any kind of uh, discussion with the IAEA over this material. They called it lies and fabrications. They pushed it aside. Finally, they were forced to clear it, clear it up, so-called, in the months after the JCPOA was presented in the fall of 2015. And the report came out by the IAEA in December 2015 saying that Iran had worked on a military nuclear program until 2003, a less coordinated manner, until at least 2009. And this was even on the basis of partial Iranian cooperation. But then everyone, some, for some reason, agreed to shelve this report. And so the P5 plus 1 weren't pressing Iran to admit that they had violated, according to the IAEA report. And the Iranians continue with their narrative. It's all lies and, and fabrications. They don't accept that conclusion. And Zarif stands on you know, any podium at any big conference, the Munich Security Conference, every year. And he says sanctions were illegal. Uh, we never did anything wrong. We never worked on a military nuclear program. And now with Netanyahu's revelations, it's even more clear cut and still the Iranians hold on to this narrative. Well, the Iranians are maintaining that fiction, right? But I think that one of the things we heard in the days following this news about the, the, the nuclear archive that Premier Netanyahu revealed was a number of Obama alumni who are kind of the biggest spokespeople for the deal and Europeans saying, of course we know about this. This is nothing new. Iran has always denied it, but we didn't have as part of our calculus that Iran was this totally innocent, you know, blameless actor. Like, we assume that they had all of these things going on. The problem with that is, if you assume quietly without saying anything, you can't use it as then leverage. it doesn't have, it, yes, mm. it doesn't have any impact. The Iranians understand the power of narratives and they got benefits 
with regard to the JCPOA because they stuck to their narrative and the other side didn't push back because the Americans would say, yeah, I mean, I would ask this question all the time when the negotiations were ongoing. And the answer I would always get is, we know what they did. Why do we have to press them on this? Why do we have to push it in their face? Why do we have to humiliate them? Well, it was never about humiliation. It was about setting the record straight so that it's clear that Iran is a violator of the NPT. So they don't get all kinds of goodies. For example, they got confidentiality rights with the IAEA in the context of the deal. Mm -hmm. They should never have gotten that. But why did they get it? Because they, they clung to their narrative that they did nothing wrong and nobody pushed back. So it's not enough just to say, ah, oh, we always knew that that was the case. If you don't say it out loud, if you don't push back and say to the Iranians, no, you are an NPT violator. That's our starting point for negotiations. You lost the trust of the international community. And it is now incumbent upon you to win back that trust. That's a very different starting point than the starting point that the P5 plus one acquiesced to, which was Iran saying, we never did anything wrong. Everything in this deal is voluntary. By the way, you open the JCPOA, the text on the internet, you will see the first sentence says, everything in this document is voluntary. Why? Because we never did anything wrong. So narratives play in to reality. Narratives are not separate from reality. They dictate how you interpret reality. So that whole, you know, approach that we know what they did, we don't need to deal with it. No, that was wrong. And that created an atmosphere that was not one to one with reality. There was always this question mark because until they cleared it up with the Iranians, do we really know? And don't forget the shadow of the Iraq war. We got it wrong in Iraq. Maybe we're getting it wrong in Iran as well. Maybe we get it wrong on any country in the Middle East that, you know, their name starts with an I. Obviously there's no connection between Iraq and Iran, but because the Iraq war was fought in 2003, WMD were not found, a lot of people for a long time were saying that maybe all the intelligence information that the IAEA has about Iran is also wrong. It's just intelligence information. Therefore, the archives were tremendously important because this is no longer intelligence and the Iranians can no longer say, this is all lies and fabrication. It's from the horse's mouth. Well, Emily, speaking of nuclear weapons in countries in the Middle East that begin with the letter I, <laughs> I think that there are um, there are many people, Iran sympathizers, people who just are are totally you know anti nuclear weapons in general, um, who would say that Israel is hypocritical for being so vocal about not wanting Iran to have nuclear weapons when Israel has this undeclared program. I think we're coming up probably on, on half a century of of having it. Uh, what, what, what would you say to them? Well, it's kind of a long answer, but I'll try to make it short. <laughs> Iran and Israel couldn't be more different in many, many respects and in the nuclear realm as well. So if we look at Iran first, Iran is a state that joined the NPT, as you said. They signed, they ratified, they made a commitment not to work on nuclear weapons, and they got benefits for it, okay? Every state that joined the NPT as a non-nuclear weapon state, 
got compensated for giving up the option of nuclear weapons. Well, no, but in terms of civilian cooperation with the nuclear powers. Um, oh, civilian nuclear energy or something. Yeah, okay. which uh, Israel didn't get uh, for not joining. Um, but they made a commitment and then proceeded to cheat on that commitment. They lied and cheated and deceived the international community for decades. They continued to lie and deceive until today. Uh, moreover, Iran is a threatening entity in the Middle East. It's threatening Israel existentially. It's threatening other states in the Middle East. It has regional hegemonic designs. If you put that together with a nuclear weapons capability, you're looking at a very dangerous situation. Um, and so when we you know, think about motivations for going nuclear, in Iran's case, it looks like this is a power enhancer. In other words, once you're a nuclear state, you gain some kind of invulnerability to counterattack. So if Iran has regional hegemonic aspirations, it will be better able to carry those out as a nuclear state. So that's Iran. Let's go to Israel. Motivation. Motivation. First of all, Israel is an assumed nuclear state, right? Israel has a policy of nuclear ambiguity. If we look at motivation, though, Israel's motivation was one motivation to deter an existential threat. That's it. Israel also has a record, as you said, uh, close to 50 years of, not using. of being an assumed nuclear state, not only not using, not threatening, mm -hmm. not talking about it, no uh, nuclear testing, nothing. And this is something that I actually studied in depth, how other states in the Middle East relate to Israel's assumed nuclear capability. And even with a policy of nuclear ambiguity, the other states understood this is only for existential purposes. The fact that Israel is involved in so many conventional wars without the nuclear issue coming into play at all is a seal of approval mm -hmm. for Israel's restraint and responsibility in the nuclear realm. And of course, Israel chose not to join the NPT exactly because it was probably at that time on the verge of becoming a nuclear state for reasons of ensuring its continued survival, and it was not going to join a treaty and then cheat on it. So you have a very, very different record for Israel and Iran, and that makes all the difference. So you can't just look at the nuclear in isolation from the context of the state, its record, you know, its relationship, whether it's threatening anyone with nuclear weapons or actually it's ensuring its own survival. Last question, do Israelis care about the North Korean nuclear program or do they see it as something that's distracting the U.S. from dealing with the far more pressing, from Israel's perspective, Iran issue? No, Israelis care. Israelis care and they don't see it as a distraction. And the reason is, you remember that reactor in Syria that Israel destroyed, that was a North Korean built reactor. We, we know so that? That's... We know that, yes, we know that. That's for sure. There were also North Koreans, there were a few North Koreans that were killed in that mm -hmm. explosion. Um, so, And there's a long history of cooperation between North Korea and Iran in the non-conventional realm. They've cooperated extensively in the ballistic missile realm and even in the nuclear realm. So for example, North Korea, one of their nuclear tests was in 2013. There were Iranian scientists on the ground in North Korea to observe 
um, that nuclear test and to learn from it. So it's really a concern for Israel because North Korea is a state that is so desperate in economic terms that its nuclear and ballistic missile and other non-conventional capabilities are a way of making money. And North Korea will share and sell uh, technologies, know-how, uh, components to anyone that will pay hard cash. Mm. And that makes it very dangerous, certainly in the Middle East. Emily, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us and for joining us here at the AJC Global Forum. My pleasure. Sergio, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Nothing against your field, but in the U.S., demographers are not household names. That's not really the case here with you. You're, you're pretty well known in Israel. Why, why is demography so important to Israelis? Demography is the study of population. And so, it's a, first of all, it's a discipline. It's not a ghost uh, or a voodoo as like we would like to have it. It's a discipline in the social sciences, very much uh, data-based. Uh, so there are techniques, there are uh, models and theories, and, and uh, a lot of data collection, analysis, uh, and then drawing conclusions. Conclusions may be also interesting for policies. And so having said that, the question of uh, population and its composition, uh, especially in the case of Jews and Arabs or Jews and Palestinians uh, in Israel and in the uh, surrounding areas, I think is of crucial importance, especially to define the identity of, uh, of the state of Israel. What is the state of Israel? Where is the state of Israel? And, and this uh, resonates, I, I believe, not only for the locals, but also for a very wide constituency of, of, of Jews and others around the world uh, who look at the Middle East and at Israel as, a, as an important focal point. And so knowing how the data look like, how the trends uh, move, uh, what's the ratio of one group versus another, is there a majority of uh, one type or of another, uh, this has uh, very, very broad implications. And so this is a topic uh, that has been covered by, by the press and by the media perhaps more than in other countries. Although I would say today demography is quite crucial in many other societies. You have researched and written extensively about what some people call the demographic time bomb here in Israel. What, what is that and why is it important? Well, f first of all, this is not my... It's English. not your term. This is not my term. I've, I've never... Uh, try to dramatize using time bomb or another expression which I totally reject, uh, Shoah, the demographic holocaust. I, I am totally against uh, mixing one thing with, uh, with another. But I uh, look at uh, the rhythm of growth of the Jewish population in Israel, which is considerable and, and which is in fact one of the highest in the developed world. Uh, that's the Jewish population, and, uh, and, and look also at the rate of growth, uh, the rhythm of growth of the um, Arabs. Uh, part of them are citizens or permanent residents within the state of Israel, and, and others live in uh, what we call the West Bank or Judea and Samaria and Gaza, and uh, so you have, uh, in fact, very different terms of reference in terms uh, of the geography. One is the state of Israel proper, as mostly recognized in its international boundaries, and, uh, and another is uh, the whole land between the Mediterranean seashore and the Jordan River Valley, uh, which defines basically what was uh, during the time of the British Mandate, uh, or uh, if you wish, the western part of Eretz Israel, of the land of Israel. 
First of all, what is the population of Israel? The population of the state of Israel is approaching uh, something like 8.7, uh, more or less, millions, uh, maybe more, uh, approaching 9 millions uh, in, in the near future, and of which about uh, 6.7 millions are Jews. Uh, there is another uh, about um, half a million or slightly less of, of, of people who are um, immigrants to the state of Israel in force of the law of return, which is the legal instrument that allows Jews and their non-Jewish families to come to Israel and get uh, immediately citizenship rights. And uh, so these uh, about half a million function in daily life uh, within the Jewish sector, but they are not recognized as Jews by the rabbinate. And, and then you have about 1.8 million uh, Arabs, uh, which is uh, also quite a heterogeneous constituency because you have a majority of Muslims, uh, followed by minorities of Christians, uh, ethnically Arabs, and then the Druze, who is a, an ethnic and religious community, uh, uh, Arab-speaking, but uh, in a sense much more integrated in the mainstream of the political and, uh, and if you wish, uh, security system of the State of Israel. They do serve in the army. And, and, and then included is also East Jerusalem, uh, which is uh, indeed not, uh, not recognized internationally by most countries as part of the State of Israel, but de facto it is. And uh, those uh, more than 300,000 Palestinians are, uh, most of them are not citizens of Israel, but they are permanent residents of Israel. So they have several, several rights. So having said that, um, it gives, um, under these uh, territorial uh, constraints, um, a Jewish majority of about 80%, including uh, for the purpose of this uh, um, example also the half million non-Jews, they, they are basic, they are serving in the army, they, they speak Hebrew, so they are, they are Jews for all purposes, even if not recognized. So we have about 80 percent uh, slightly less Jews and about 20 percent or slightly more uh, Arabs. So, so let me ask, these are the numbers from the Central Bureau the Central of Statistics. Bureau of Statistics. These but, are but certified data of a very serious statistical, like the Bureau of Census. But it does not include every human being living between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Absolutely Sea. Absolutely not. It, uh, the figure I gave you includes the, um, about 400,000 Israelis who do live in Judea and Samaria. They are included under the roof of, of the Israeli law, although they, they live, uh, in fact, out of the international boundary. But in addition, you have something like, uh, and here I wish to, to be very, very clear, I'm quoting my own estimates as an independent researcher with uh, some experience and uh, not uh, necessarily in agreement with what uh, the Palestinian Bureau of Statistics say, uh, says or even uh, um, the Israel Defense Forces say based on, on the register of population that they administer. So I, I think the, the better estimate of, of permanent residence in the West Bank is about two and a half millions, not including East Jerusalem, which we have already include, included once in the Israeli population. So, so the, the Arabs of East Jerusalem are counted by the Central Bureau of Statistics? Yes, they are. And uh, so the two and a half millions uh, are, I think, a realistic estimate of the population of the West Bank. And then you have uh, more than 1.8 millions, approaching 1.9 millions in the Gaza Strip. Uh, also by a kind of independent estimate, which has to take into account sources and, and uh, information about uh, the rhythm of change. 
And so you have, uh, at the end of the day, if you, if you wish to be binary or dichotomous, you have between the, river, between the sea and the river something like 6.9 million Jews and their um, family members. You have about 6.2 Arabs, either citizens or residents or Palestinians of the territories. And so 6.9 versus 6.2 millions is a majority. It is a modest majority. Uh, by the way, there are another 200,000 foreign workers, African refugees and asylum seekers. All of this uh, you can include. In fact, these are human beings who live, uh, they, they breath, they, they uh, uh, eat, and uh, therefore they might be included, although they are not permanent residents. And so th th there is a Jewish majority ranging between 52% uh, by one method or 50% by another method, uh, 0.1, just, just a, a very tiny Jewish majority. Uh, this is the current uh, situation. Uh, and then based on this, uh, by, by the way, there is an intermediate, I mean, 50% plus if you take the total population of the territory, 80% or slightly minus, as I said, state of Israel. In between Israel plus West Bank, gives us something in the range of 60-62% Jews and uh, slightly less than 40% non-Jews. This is the, the starting point. At this point, uh, demographers uh, used to do also population projections to, to ask the question, how will it uh, evolve over time? And what we have uh, in the most uh, recent round of, uh, of projections is, is quite interesting. Um, the Central Bureau of Statistics uh, in the first place did uh, a projection of, of Israel alone uh, up to 2065. Of course, we, we don't know really what the world will be in 2065, but it's interesting and it's uh, especially important to look at uh, an intermediate point in time like 2030, 2035, because th that can be quite accurate. And what, what we see is that the Jewish population is growing uh, quite fast and to some extent uh, slightly faster than the Arab population in Israel because uh, we have a significant uh, community of Haredim, the, the very orthodox and uh, quite segregated Jewish uh, observant population in Israel. And they have a fantastic rhythm of growth at the moment. And so it sustains and supports and, and keeps uh, the uh, total Jewish population running. But if we imagine that at some point the Haredi population will undergo, as it is beginning to do, some process of modernization and um, a greater integration into the Israeli system, meaning starting to serve in the army uh, for some of the young men and then uh, starting to acquire uh, secular education in the professions like studying law, studying computers, studying public accountancy and not only uh, Jewish uh, themes like uh, Talmud, Gemara, and so on. At that point, you would have a Haredi population which does better economically because it is more uh, capable of supporting and less in need of external subsidies. And in addition, probably some of the modernization would percolate down into the family size, which is today around seven children. Uh, give and take on the average, and it might uh, slightly diminish, uh, not to 2.1 uh, like the United Nations expects uh, everybody in the world will do, uh, which is not realistic at all. But uh, instead of five having, fi uh, instead of seven having five, 
it is a significant change and still allows a significant growth to this community. In that case, the rate of growth of the Haredim would diminish and therefore the total Jewish population would also diminish. That is, it would grow very much, but at a somewhat less uh, speedy at a rate. rhythm. And therefore, the proportions uh, would uh, basically remain uh, similar and uh, slightly diminish between uh, Jews and, and Arabs. And so I go back to my uh, standardized uh, figures, about 80% in the longer run uh, with uh, the territory of the State of Israel, 60% adding the West Bank and 50% adding uh, Gaza. I just want to stay for a moment on this decision by the Central Bureau of Statistics to count Jews living in the West Bank, Israeli settlers, in their numbers and to not count Palestinians in their numbers. Because I think that when those numbers are the most quoted numbers, it almost feels like it can obfuscate the extent of, of the challenge that the country needs to, to reckon with, with such a, a close proportion of, of Jews and Arabs within what some people, what, a, what a, a significant portion of the Israeli population wants to someday see as, as the full borders of the state of Israel. So, you know, when we hear people talk about annexation, that's a much easier problem to reckon with if you think that there aren't that many Arabs in the West Bank. Yeah, well, this, of course, uh, then turns into uh, highly political, uh, of course, different uh, political uh, parties uh, look and, and, in fact, present things uh, quite differently. The reason for keeping the Israelis in the, in the West Bank uh, in, uh, in the equation is that, first of all, they are all Israeli citizens. They are connected uh, at all levels with, uh, with Israeli society. Uh, of course, th there is a political problem in terms of, uh, of their neighbors, and, and so this is the, the different level of this uh, discussion. Um, they, um, Israelis in the West Bank uh, uh, constitute uh, something like 5% um, or slightly more of the uh, electorate, but in fact they are much uh, overrepresented in the parliament because the political parties uh, tend to compete for that uh, relatively minor part of the vote and so they uh, put uh, members of that community uh, into their lists. Uh, as you know, in, uh, in Israel we don't have electoral districts and therefore lists are prepared in which uh, the heads of the party uh, rank uh, the candidates in a certain way and those who pass, pass according to, to the total national vote. Right, and so parties further to the right might they want them for ideological reasons, whereas parties closer to the center might want to make the economic argument because a lot of people living on the West Bank are lower income. Yeah, although I think they get uh, relatively few vote. I think the, the left and the center left get relatively few votes in the West Bank and the competition is between uh, the religious and the national parties uh, who are uh, strong and, and, and therefore are interested at putting more candidates uh, from, from that particular area. Uh, and so the um, consensus here is that those who live in the West Bank are sort of part, an integral part of Israeli society and they are included in all indicators. You spoke a moment ago about the Haredi birth rate and also about their further integration into Israeli society. Do you view that integration as an imperative for the future success of the state of Israel? I personally would say yes. This is uh, perhaps a personal opinion, but I think there is a widespread understanding among uh, the uh, more religious and Haredi sectors that this in fact is going to happen and it is um, not only unavoidable but good for them because the fact is that in the current situation that particular uh, 
constituency is uh, often below the level of poverty and poverty is not a good thing and uh, of course they have to get subsidies from uh, from the mainstream and uh, this creates uh, tensions uh, in theory at some point there would be not enough money for subsidizing those in need and so they they understand that there needs to be uh, greater uh, socioeconomic uh, autonomy and so at least part of the sector do encourage theirs to, uh, to uh, acquire uh, professions and knowledge that will enable them to be independent. In fact, interestingly, women have uh, often uh, been more active economically in the Haredi sector than men, uh, uh, although at levels of employment like teachers or social workers that do not provide very high levels of income, but it is at least a decent income. The men, on the other hand, have been going to study for, uh, for all of their life, and so the transition is more visible among the men. And there is one further point uh, so far relatively minor, but in the future it might become more significant, and that's the military service. You, you must understand, and this is perhaps not so clear to everybody out of Israel, that military service in Israel is the very powerful mechanism to integrate in civil society. That is, you, you first of all learn uh, jobs and, uh, and skills that you didn't have. Second, you get a vision of the, of the issues which uh, you, you cannot have by not being involved in the field. And third and importantly, you create networks of friends and colleagues and peers as uh, soldiers and officers that will serve you very much later on when you will uh, move to the civil sectors. And so those who did not have the experience of military service uh, miss all of these uh, very, very important personal connections. So by doing that, those who will serve will find themselves in a much uh, more advantageous position later on, and th that will be part of the social mobility expected. Sergio, the people in the U.S., who talk most about demography right now are probably actually the far right white supremacist types who are kind of obsessed with maintaining this white European majority in the country. What would you say to people who are uncomfortable with a focus on demography from a perspective of, of measuring races and nationalities? Well, look, I, uh, I see the point I, on, on a personal ground. I was born in Italy. And uh, when I was born, because I'm not so young, the prime minister in Italy was Benito Mussolini. <laughs> and so I know very well what the racial policies uh, of Italy and of Germany, of course, did, uh, how they persecuted the Jews on a uh, allegedly racial ground, and, and how deleterious and dramatically uh, dangerous uh, demography can become if it becomes... Uh, a part of, of a system of, of discrimination. So we must be very cautious. We are here uh, doing research and, and measuring things. Of course, uh, the political decisions uh, must be taken by, by hopefully democratic and, and responsible leaders. But I think the interest uh, in studying society and in looking how uh, societies uh, tend to be more homogeneous or less, how the national societies uh, that uh, prevailed in, in the past, uh, by the way, of course, the United States is, is a different case because the United States is the uh, most prominent example of a multicultural society and uh, its constitution is, is clearly very different from the constitution of, of constitutions of many other states. But many countries do have an ethnic, ethnic background 
kind of homogeneous. They declare in their constitutions that there is one predominant religion or one ethnicity. And uh, this being the situation, it's true that the state of Israel uh, was born in, in such an atmosphere, that is uh, the state of the Jews, taking into account that the Assembly of the United, Sta of the United Nations uh, voted for having two national states, one of the Jews and one of the Arabs. They were not called Israel and Palestine. There was the Jewish state and the Arab state. This concept is uh, reasonable, in my view, in the Middle East where identities are strong, where the idea of the federalism that has been uh, developed in the US and in Switzerland and in some other countries is not really viable because to, to have a federal state with different types you need uh, the supreme conviction that uh, living together and uh, having in common some supreme goals is shared by everybody. And this is not the case here. Unfortunately, we have a conflict, we are uh, in competition, and therefore the idea of two separate states, each of which will have their own norms and language and religion and, 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 and culture and, and day of rest, by the way, uh, is, I think, the, uh, the, the more viable. And so, uh, monitoring whether this is feasible and, and, uh, and, and viable or, or not, uh, this, this has an interest on behalf of the people. Again, not being a supremacist, be very careful of not bringing demography to, to the verge uh, of imposition. You are a leading expert in the demography of the State of Israel, but you're also an expert in Jewish peoplehood. Jews have been a diaspora people for over 2,000 years. We have prayed for the ingathering of the exiles, but if Israel isn't the world's largest Jewish community yet, it soon will be. The exiles are ingathered. Well, I, I believe Israel is the largest so, so, Jewish so. community in the world. So, Sergio, what does it mean for our people that Israel has become not just our spiritual home, but also our demographic center? Well, this is an extraordinary revolution in terms of history, as you mentioned. And in fact, uh, it also points to the extraordinary success of the, uh, of the Israeli project and its uh, ability not only to survive uh, in front of, uh, of enemies, but also to create a viable economy, uh, technology which is uh, super sophisticated and competitive, and therefore increasing the capability of absorption of millions of new immigrants and, and, uh, and of providing at the same time a fairly decent standard of living. Today Israel is among the 20 most developed countries in the world, uh, out of uh, nearly 200 units and uh, it's still uh, improving. Uh, the level of an unemployment, by the way, is very low these days. And, um, uh, and so this uh, is another factor that makes, um, to some extent, Israel attractive for others to come here. Of course, the, ma the main reason is cultural and ideological. I mean, you, you go to Israel also because you believe in the project, and, and many do. Um, but the fact is that uh, Israel also has had for the last tens of years, a very viable demography in terms of uh, still giving premium to the classic nuclear family, um, adults with uh, three kids. This is nearly unheard of today in Western societies. You have uh, countries uh, in, in Southern Europe with an average of one point something, and here we have uh, more than three, the U.S. is around two, and, and so it's, uh, and uh, it's not only the religious 
who wish to have children. Uh, we see among the seculars and among the moderately traditional families of three, four, and even five kids, provided they have a good level of income. Uh, often uh, you need to have two jobs, of course, in, in the same household. And, but but this, uh, we see that. Uh, that is the kind of middle-of-the-road bourgeoisie in Israel tends to have more children than those who have less. And so this is a very interesting for the psychology because it means you wish to have that, you have the resources to have that, and therefore you achieve that. So having said that, uh, the rest of world Jewry, primarily the U.S., which is by far the dominant force, but then Western Europe and Latin America and, and, and Australia, South Africa and, and, uh, and Eastern Europe, they have a totally different uh, demographic model. Low fertility, which is mutuated by the general society around them, especially in Europe. And then uh, becoming uh, older, because having few children means that the average age of a population uh, grows. And so you have uh, an, an elderly population. And then unavoidably, the, it happens that the death rate becomes higher than the birth rate, uh, just because of the structure of population. Uh, the health conditions are good, but, but you don't have enough young people. Uh, the other factor, uh, well known in the US and elsewhere, is the drift, the identificational drift uh, related to family formation and having many uh, families in which one of the partners is Jewish and, and one, one is not. I th this is the natural product of, of a peaceful and nice interaction of Jews in total society. Jews, unlike the past, are accepted. Jews are, may I say, nice people, educated people, hardworking people, honest people. That, that is, this is a, a, a group of people who are desirable in the eyes of others and, and then they function in universities, in cities and suburbs and in uh, workplaces uh, next to others. And so the process of uh, marriages of Jews and non-Jews is, is kind of the natural product of this. The problem is that very often and most, most often than not, the children of such marriages are um, identified or educated more with the non-Jewish partner than with the Jewish partner. So, so this causes kind of erosion of the demographic potential of the Jewish community. And so in the longer run, uh, it produces stability or decline. And this is what we see in terms of, of Jews out of Israel. The, the other truth is that many uh, descendants of intermarriages do not deny their Jewish origin. Sometimes they are proud of it. So they say, yes, I have a, a Jewish ancestor. I, I had a, a Jewish grandmother whom I loved very much. I'm not Jewish, but I cannot deny that there is a, an emotional feeling toward uh, Jews and Judaism. And so, uh, in truth, is not, uh, again, a dichotomic system. It is a, a gradual passage with many nuances from a core of strongly identified persons to a very large and growing periphery of people who have some remnant of an idea that once there was Judaism in their homes. Of course, the question is how you count. And here different people will have different uh, criteria. I, I very much respect uh, the fact that different uh, organizations uh, may have different strategies in terms of determining what their preferred constituency is just the nucleus or a broader constituency or one which is even even broader. Uh, but um, the fact is that the, the, the central portion of this 
a kind of concentric circles, does reproduce itself. The periphery doesn't Jewishly. It doesn't produce, uh, there are a few, but doesn't produce really a new Jewish generation. And so this is, uh, I think, a realistic uh, way of saying why at some point the number of Jews in Israel surpassed the number of Jews in, in the U.S. By the way, this has happened during the last 10 years or so, not, not before. It's, it's a very recent uh, feature. But now Israel has um, quite certainly a larger Jewish population than the U.S. And eventually, if the trends continue by the 2030s or so, there might be a day where more than 50% of all Jews who are identified in a sufficiently clear way live in Israel. Israel might have the majority of world Jewry at some point. Sergio, thank you so much for joining us at the AJC Global Forum and for sharing your insight today. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Now it's time for our closing segment, Good for the Jews, where each week I share one final thought about a recent development in the world and try to answer that age-old question. Is it good for the Jews? Comic-Con. Good for the Jews? The annual Nerdfest in San Diego is known more for its superhero-obsessed superfans and homemade fantasy costumes than it is for history. But this year, the star of the show for many attendees was 90-year-old Holocaust survivor Ruth Goldschmidova Sachs, who spoke to an overflowing room on a panel entitled Art During the Holocaust. Sachs spoke about the Nazis' use of anti-Semitic propaganda to turn European populations against Jews and told her own story of survival in Auschwitz, Theresienstadt, and Oderon. Her co-panelists spoke of the role comics played on this side of the Atlantic, depicting super-powered beings, emblems of Americana beating up on the Nazis. And while Captain America punching Hitler in the face was undoubtedly good for the Jews, what I'm thinking about today is how few opportunities remain to hear from survivors like Ruth. The more that Holocaust memory and history can be embedded into our places of pop culture, the more that the nerds at Comic-Con and the jocks in their sports arenas and cooks in their kitchens and the actors in their theaters can be reminded of this history and learn to retell these stories, well, that certainly would be good for the Jews. You can subscribe to AJC Passport on iTunes or on Stitcher. Follow us on SoundCloud or learn more at AJC.org Passport. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at passport at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. This episode is brought to you by AJC, the American Jewish Committee. Our producer is Alex Zeldin. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of AJC Passport.